0: Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review and you can always visit our website www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. On March 1st, we will be creating separate channels. For the Project MedTech Podcast and our MedTech Money Podcast. So if you are a fan of both podcasts, please search Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to both channels. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Robert Hamilton from Nova Signal discuss the glamor of being a MedTech startup executive why access to blood flow was such a problem and how he discovered the problem, the mistake he made in code that led to Nova Signal, understanding how to fill your talent gaps as a founder, how he got the first money in the door, the skill set required to manage a board, understanding how to raise capital to hit that next milestone, not being greedy and raising too much money, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Robert Hamilton. innovation starts with medical
1: discussion. Talking about the future, and what comes next with
2: Project MedTech. Robert, thank you very much for joining us today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I'm looking forward to this discussion because we're going to talk about what that full spectrum entrepreneurial journey looks like from being a co-founder all the way through taking a med tech through to commercialization, in addition to specifically raising Series C financing and what those nuances are. So thank you for joining us. And I wanted to set the table with the fact that I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world, and I've discovered that there's really no silver bullet or magic or specific formula on how to raise or even invest capital in MedTech. So your unique journey, I wanted to grab your insights, your anecdotal stories, and obviously speak with people like investment bankers and investors of all sorts, and certainly entrepreneurs like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from this information and for entrepreneurs and investors to come. So the audience here is certainly a mixture of experts and novices listening in, and I wanted to extract your stories, your advice, your insights so that we can share with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO, for example, who has no clue on what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And I thought the best place to start was learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So, coming back to that, I wanted to really highlight the fact and congratulations, by the way, of Nova Signal raising that Series C and then also talking about that full spectrum journey. So, before we get into your background, talking about Nova Signal and certainly that capital raise, I have a few open-ended questions that I wanted to start with. And my first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Why or why not? Or would you add anything if I'm missing it?
1: Yeah, first of all, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure speaking with you. I'm very excited about today and uh, trying to share our experience here and my experience at, at Nova Signal. And, uh, you know, help uh, entrepreneurs along this uh, along this pathway. But uh, to your question, I, I would agree completely. I would add one, which is which is vision, which really ties those things together. I think that we are only as good as the people uh, that have been part of this company, uh, and we've been really lucky to have tremendous engineers, marketing, sales, really across the spectrum, helping us get to where we are today, not only the team we have, uh, but the team members that have been with us throughout this entire, uh, entire uh, journey. Obviously, capital is, uh, is needed to help drive something uh, along the pathway to commercialization, but I feel without that vision, uh, it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to one, recruit high-quality talent uh, and align them to the ultimate vision of where you're trying to go. Uh, and then capital is a, is a necessary evil to get there, uh, to, to move the vote forward. But without that vision uh, tying everything together, uh, it would be impossible to, uh, to commercialize a product.
2: And you actually used the word for my next question. You mentioned that you guys felt lucky. Um, here's my question. In medtech, do you believe A, do you believe in luck? And B, Does luck play into success of MedTech? I mean, you can develop a great product, you can have a big market, you can have capital, you can have talent, but do you believe in this glue that may be in between that we can't see and is somewhat in ether? And is there luck involved, whether it's politics or timing or whatever you want to call it, but something very out of your control that may or may not stop you from succeeding?
1: Yeah, I think that you know not to discount hard work and the hard work of the of the team and our investors, but luck absolutely plays a role in it. Uh, Medtech is so multifaceted that it's difficult uh, you know unlike the field of dreams you just can't build it and they will come. You need a number of different things to come into alignment to ultimately commercialize the product. Whether that's kind of regulatory positioning at the time Reimbursement positioning treatment availability for us, which was really important uh, as a diagnostic and monitoring company uh, without that treatment element. It's very difficult um, and in starting out in traumatic brain injury where we started and pivoting the stroke uh, where treatments were available. Um, luck played a huge role in that if if those clinical trials weren't available and those new treatments weren't available, the need for a diagnostic was not as great at the time. And so luck absolutely played a role. Um, The development of new technologies and infrastructure like the cloud and the availability of AWS or Google Cloud also um, really helped us along the way to expand or democratize access to what we're trying to do here at NovaSignal. And having been
2: an entrepreneur in med tech for a while now, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur and all that it takes to become one from soup to nuts, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently if you could?
1: Yeah, I will say there's a little bit ignorance is bliss, um, you know, when we first started out, because, you know, when we started out, I thought that regulatory clearance or approval, uh, depending on your pathway, was the, the end. That was, that was the exciting time, getting regulatory clearance, um, and then customers would just be there. Um, now, knowing that um, that is just a, a milestone along the ultimate vision and uh, ultimate pathway to get to where you need to be, whether that's medical economics or supply, building a supply chain, there is a tremendously complex network of things that ultimately need to get done uh, to sell a product into, um, into the medtech space. And so would I do it again? Absolutely. Uh, because I think that this has been an incredible journey for not only myself, but the entire team on ultimately delivering a product that helps patients, helps the physicians deliver higher quality care and helps patients is really the, the ultimate reward for us. Um, I will say I, I didn't think it would be as hard uh, starting out as it has been.
2: So you mentioned, rolling into my next question now, ignorance is bliss. It's difficult, multifaceted. A lot going on, multiple hats. This idea, if you're not an entrepreneur and you're an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe you work in corporate or maybe you're unemployed, whatever it may be, but this notion of being in a startup and how, whether it's Netflix or the world has made it sound super sexy and how you can build a startup and sell it for a billion dollars and then do whatever you want with the rest of your life. Um, All the stuff that those people who watch those shows and movies and whatever it may be, that don't really know the daily grind or what happens behind the scenes in order to make it sound super sexy or, or develop a unicorn, whatever it may be. Is it glamorous to be a MedTech C-level entrepreneur? I,
1: I will say the, the one thing is it's all-consuming. When, when I think about it, there's not a, a day, an hour that goes by um, that I don't think or worry or strategize about what else we could be doing. Um, you know, and I, I can't say if that's unique to founders or if it's just unique to people you know within the startup environment. Always having this um, ZCD or zero cash date out in front of you or it's, it's something that you need to drive uh, towards is is and can be exhausting um, for, for founders. And it's something that I don't think, although it's it's come up more lately in the last few years, Uh, ensuring that mental health is an important aspect for founders, being able to try to find some balance. But the reality is, is that every aspect of the business uh, you will worry about, Um, whether that's a supply chain issue, um, you know, in Asia, or if it's, you know, how will reimbursement affect the ability to sell or uh, convince physicians of our business model? Um, This is something that continually comes up. And so if this is if people are used to a nine to five job, this is not the right pathway, um, especially in medtech, because you have that added that added complexity of, of patient health um, and safety that is weighing over you. Um, unlike other fields, and I'm not I'm not discounting other fields of technology. Um, where uh, you know a, a failure can impact uh, things, but a failure in medtech uh, carries the extra gravity of of impacting patient lives. And so, whether that's additional testing or again a, a different business model change, it is all consuming um, for uh, for those in us in this field. So, what I would want people to be aware of um, when we start to talk about what is it glamorous? Uh, I mean, uh, the highs are very high, right? Being able to say that we helped to diagnose a patient that would otherwise go undiagnosed is, is an incredible feeling. It's, it's unbelievable not only for me, but the entire team, but at the same time uh, there are low lows uh, as well. Being able to not ship a product on time or, being able to be stuck in a number of different regulatory environments. So uh, it's a little bit of mixture. Even today, almost nine years in, uh, there are still very high highs and very low lows.
2: So it's just a different style of glamour. It's a cerebral glamour. It's a prideful glamour of being able to help out others. And and that's what you have to be focused on. It's not the Netflix glamour of building a unicorn and driving around in a Bentley and making a billion dollars in overnight, it seems, on the shows.
1: Yeah, I think the timelines are different, um, you know, in MedTech, uh, you know, having to integrate some of those things, the ability to turn around things in 18 months in MedTech is a little bit different uh, versus uh, some other fields of, uh, of technology.
2: And then last question, what does the name of your company mean, Nova Signal? How did you creatively or create creatively come up with it? And what does it signal? What does it mean?
1: Yeah, so we we actually rebranded uh, around eighteen months ago. We started out as Neural Analytics, which, a, as a group of engineers that started the company, it was it made intuitive sense. We were we were doing analytics uh, within within the brain, um, and as the company vision grew and continued to expand, um, with uh, Diane Bryant coming on as their new CEO in in January of twenty twenty, we really started to rethink about what. Neural analytics meant and what we were doing, and realized that it was uh, unfortunately um, outside of from some very tactical things. Um, it wasn't fully capturing what we thought of uh, as the ultimate vision of the company. So uh, we came up with with Nova Signal, which is new signal. Um, and as we're as we're democratizing access to cerebral blood flow um, and really unlocking the the power of that modality or, or that measurement. Um, that's really where we uh, came across the idea of, of Nova Signal and thinking about it as a completely new modality that physicians, unfortunately, don't have access to today. Uh, and being able to provide access to that information is really the, the origins of NovaSignal as, as a name and as a motivation for what we're doing today.
2: And finally, the man behind the voice, Robert Hamilton, co-founder and chief scientific officer of NovaSignal. Who are you? Where, where do you come from? Who are you throughout your academic and professional career? How did you become a co-founder of Nova Signal at this point? Just
1: let us all know the man behind The Voice. Yeah, so I, you know, originally from Boise, Idaho, um, and started, started my academic career uh, in a small liberal arts school, I was really motivated uh, by engineering very early on. But it wasn't until, um, you know, as a college baseball player that I was injured and got interested in biomechanics that um, I I decided to really make that switch and get interested in the interface of of engineering and medicine. Uh, I finished my degree at at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, which was really another catalyst for me. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, travel internationally uh, and work with stroke patients in in China. Um, And that was really, for me, a seminal moment uh, in understanding that the use of technology can really, again, democratize access uh, and improve patient care around the world. Not only only here in the US, but around the world. Um, And so that I use that uh, as a seminal moment to apply to graduate school um, at UCLA. So I did my PhD in biomedical engineering, but given my experience in in China and internationally, I really wanted to work with patients directly. And so I was looking for a lab and I I got this incredible opportunity at UCLA uh, where I, Got around with the physicians every day in the neurocritical care unit, and I believe that inspiration—the bringing together of, of engineers and, and physicians—we just think very differently about problems. And uh, after rounding for several years, uh, I, I made a, a simple mistake in my code uh, while working at uh, at UCLA, and um, really the the core of NovaSignal was born. Um, and this it was the idea that access to blood flow uh, is incredibly important, but we just didn't have it. And UCLA was one of the top neurocenters in the world. And if they didn't have access to this information but it could provide clinical information that could save patients' lives, we had to do something. At the same time, I was asked to uh, train some individuals in, in rural Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa um, and realized that I couldn't do the training myself. Um, so I had to go and perform these procedures um, in, in Malawi. And that was really the second piece of the catalyst, not only looking at small variations in blood flow, uh, but realizing that without providing uh, technology to mo- democratize access, the technology wouldn't reach its full potential. Um, and those were really the two pieces uh, that brought together the core of Nova Signal and, and remains the core of what we're trying to do today, which is unlock the hidden power of blood flow, uh, again, not only for world class centers, uh, but expanding that into rural areas in the US uh, but also expanding internationally
2: so the umbrella next question is who and what is nova signal so we can get in a little bit deeper you yeah. can allude to the technology but before we get into that open ended question you mentioned mistake in your code and that that was mm. the reason for being born of the idea of nova signal what does that mean what, what mistake did you make
1: Yeah, so the, uh, you know, one of these aspects is engineers can get deep, deep in the weeds. And uh, something I often lecture on when I talk to undergraduates or graduate students is you should never overlook uh, something that seems initially to be a mistake. Um, And so long hours in the neurointensive care unit, I made a mistake and switched to two lines of data that were coming in. So traditionally, I'd been looking at very invasive signals. Um, And the technology we use today, which is a non-invasive ultrasound signal, just happened to also be in the number of signals that I was collecting. And when I switched those basically cables, um, all the work that we had been doing on on signal processing and machine learning actually also applied to this non-invasive signal. And that was a, a light bulb moment for, uh, for me and then eventually kind of s- steered the rest of my PhD in that we don't have to just look at invasive signals. It seems relatively simple today, uh, but if we look at in non-invasive signals as well, looking at these very small changes in blood flow, um, that could provide an incredible benefit. And sure enough that, again, changed the course of my PhD um, and it, by the end of it uh, felt that we had enough to start a company. Um, and so was was lucky enough to uh, find some co-founders at Ucla um, on the business end and then started uh, started the vision of the company which was small variations in blood flow combined with robotics to improve access uh, was really the origin and the catalyst for uh, what we are today
2: so i'll leave that open-ended question out there of who and what is nova signal but start with this. you mentioned buzzwords and even if you go to your website, it's buzzwords. it's it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, software, digital. Is the actual product or solution is it intangible as a software solution or are you actually creating a manufactured tangible product, medtech?
1: yeah we're we're creating a, a manufactured uh, hardware robotic system here that is now cloud connected. So we are, Um, do all of our assembly here in Los Angeles, Uh, but it does have a number of different components, uh, which adds to the complexity, but also adds um, some nice uh, features from a protection standpoint, uh, where software is not only difficult to patent, it's sometimes difficult to um, work through and walk through with physicians. So having that hardware component has really been Uh, integral in our success. So breaking down the different components of what we do, uh, we have a base ultrasound, um, which has been around for for decades, but very, uh, or severely underutilized because of how difficult it is to use. And so the first component of what we do is we've built our own ultrasound, but we've wrapped that in a fully automated robotic uh, hardware platform, which, emulates a a, a human sonographer and is able to capture those signals in a fully automated way, which automatically democratizes access to this signal. Um, And so today, uh, around 8% of hospitals have access to this ultrasound, not because it's um, insignificant, it's just very difficult to do. Um, It's supported by a number of guidelines and evidence uh, over the last several decades. But again, we're just allowing access through a fully automated robotic system. The next component of that is really the cloud aspect is delivering this information to the healthcare professionals that need it in a real-time format. And so that not only includes advanced analysis and machine learning algorithms that help interpret that, uh, but then the the cloud infrastructure to deliver that via a a web platform or an application uh, to those physicians in real-time, allowing them to make more timely decisions on these critical elements. So... Thank you for the background. I want to start moving
2: into this objective portion of what we're going to be discussing and I really want to break it out into two. So first and foremost, highlighting the recent Series C. So once again, congratulations on that. But I think um, that information that we'll get from that raise will come from this next question, which I think is actually probably a little bit more profound where all these entrepreneurs may be listening because it is very rare. Um, There's a lot of companies that get founded, a lot of companies that get started. And very few of those founders who have an intention of creating a product, a medical device, a medical technology, with the intention of it having benefit to patients, very rarely does someone actually get to maintain that entire journey to see that technology actually have an impact commercially on patients. So I want to focus this podcast and this discussion there. And I think naturally everything else is going to come out of it um, with regards to capital raising, as well as business lessons learned along the way. And I think it, it, once again, due to it being so unique and rare, um, it's, you you have this valley of death of not necessarily on the capital raise series B-ish, but it's really about these people who want to bring a company as far as they possibly can and then realize along the way or having their board tell them along the way that there may not be the right person and we have to get the right person in there. And you may be able to stay on board or you may not in terms of the health of the company. So that's where I want to start. Um, Let's leave it open-ended. We can start picking pieces out of it. But being a founder... And then having to do that initial, maybe it was family and friends or seed and then series A and then series B and this latest and greatest uh, press release, you call it C1. So I want to walk through that whole aspect of what did you learn along the way? Have you raised money before? How what were those trial and errors or trials and tribulations of not being able to find money versus finding money in each of these different steps and the hard stuff versus the maybe easier stuff? I'll leave that open. We can start picking it apart.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an incredibly complex topic, but something, um, you know, we could probably talk for hours on. So I'll try to distill some of the high points. I, I think the, the first and foremost, and uh, where I've made a lot of mistakes along the way and try to uh, pass this information on to, to entrepreneurs is first, you have to be humble. You have to realize, uh, I remember some of the first thoughts I had were, uh, I can do this on my own. Uh, which is completely false. I think that this journey, not only in, in medtech but entrepreneurship generally, is is you need uh, you need partners to do this. You need to find skill sets that you do not possess that I'm sure you could do, uh, but you need to go out and find those. And finding those in my co-founders um, were were essential for our success uh, very early on. Uh, as an engineer uh, and as an academic, when I started. Um, I didn't have a set, an assessment of building a marketing plan or building fundraising. I had never raised, I had to look up what a pre-money valuation was um, and really starting from scratch um, and trying to learn as much as I could. But at the same time, knowing and being humble enough to say, I need help here is essential as an entrepreneur, um, and even to this day, after you know raising um, today now over a hundred million dollars for uh, for Nova Signal, still realizing that there are elements of the business uh, that we do not know that I do not know um, a, a, as a founder, and uh, bringing in that that help when you need it is essential throughout the vision or the the, the journey of the company. So I'd say that kind of first and foremost, um, engineers uh, can be uh, a, a special breed where they think that you know, because they can develop a new product, they can also develop a sales plan. And that's just unfortunately not the case. Um, And so I would encourage uh, founders to go out and really find other like-minded people in your area to fill the gaps of your team. Um, The other aspect that I like to focus on is, uh, and I see engineers and entrepreneurs making this mistake, is not talking enough about what they're doing to enough people. And so they have this vision of wanting to protect their idea. Um, and I think that this is also a fatal error um, in that we talked to hundreds and over the nine years, probably thousands of people uh, pitched uh, thousands of times. Uh, and you never know where that next inspiration will come from. Uh, our first money in the company was from a random, uh, a random coffee meeting. Um, that turned into uh, our, our first convertible note of a couple hundred thousand that got us to our uh, prototype that eventually became our series seed round uh, back in 2014. And so I think that entrepreneurs need to, and it is tireless. You, you have to go out and pitch at every event you can. Um, you have to pitch to any investor that will listen to you and really hone down any opportunity because you, again, never know where that one introduction will be. Uh, I wish there was a silver bullet that you would go and you, you would pitch to Tech Coast Angels or NEA or whoever. Um, but that's not the case. You have to really, um, really hustle and, and pitch to as many people as you can. You never know where that next inspiration will come from. So those are, those are two major elements that I start to think of over the course. Uh, even to this day, I'm happy to pitch to any investor, I am happy to bring on any team member that I believe, uh, will ultimately make this as uh, successful, not only for us as a company, but for the patients that we're serving. So those are two huge points,
2: the humble factor, meaning you can't do it alone. So clearly needing a team and going back to that opening question of people and money, lifeblood of a med tech startup, right? So people, um, and then also this networking aspect slash talking about your technology. Um, that's that's huge because that's a very common theme at least within this series is being an entrepreneur in medtech, if you lack that networking skill set or you're averse to networking because it's not in your DNA to be that networker, that hustler, um, it it could be fatal to your to your words.
1: Could be fatal. Yeah, you need to you need to complement uh, yourself then with somebody that that they thrive on that um, because it is going to be essential for your success. Um, not only in in partnerships, but raising money and especially bringing in talent. Um, bringing in world class talent is essential for building these companies. So then I want to focus on
2: these dichotomies or these polar opposites of early stage financing versus now this commercial growth stage financing that you've recently raised. You mentioned that your first financing came from a coffee discussion leading to a $200,000 convertible note. Knowing that you came from academia, you founded the technology, and you had no idea about what fundraising or capital raising was, and you had to look up what pre-money valuation meant. Where did you really start? I mean, did you just lock yourself up in a room and start Googling and reading books and having a few questions to people who anyone who would listen? Or what was some of your if you can remember all those years back, yeah. that that methodology of that magical point in time where it no longer was just a scientific or engineering idea that you had on the back of a napkin, but it was now requiring capital to actually start slowly developing or evolving. What, that critical moment in time of
1: like, now it's on you to figure out how do we get money. What did you do? Yeah. And I will say that, it, you know, related to the question, people often ask me, you know, what, um, what was the scariest moment or what was the pivotal moment uh, in the company? And even to this day, uh, the first time we took outside capital uh, was by far, you, it became real at that point. It, it became, you know, up until then, uh, my co-founders and I had just been working on this on the side. Uh, but once we took money, it, it really became real for us. Um, and so going back to that kind of origin story, um, engineers, and especially in medtech, you, you need to ultimately solve a problem, right? You, you don't want to develop technology to go find a problem. And uh, this, uh, the, the origins were, you know, around a, a, an event, a, a pop culture event where a, a celebrity unfortunately passed away and died uh, from a condition that this technology could address. Uh, and through, uh, through the work at UCLA, through a cross-campus collaboration, they had business plan competitions uh, that I was lucky enough to, to enter and win. Uh, but once they said, hey, now you're going to go participate uh, and, and pitch to investors, um, I knew I needed help. Um, and so that was the, the, the humble aspect of it. So um, you know, hats off to the UCLA community uh, for, for connecting me to, uh, to my co-founders, uh, Leo Petrosian and Dan Hanchi. Uh, who were at the business school at the time. Um, And then we really started uh, putting it together. Uh, And given the initial interest we had with our our partners at SoCal Bio here in Los Angeles, um, that's where we met our first investors. Um, And really, again, it was just about hustling and going out and pitching as much as we could. Um, And so from that aspect, uh, we were able to start to build up a prototype, start to build up that initial market. Again, not only talking to investors tirelessly, but talking to customers, potential customers. And that could be anywhere in the U.S. or around the world, just trying to get feedback on what direction we could go. Um, And as soon as we started to hit that that progress, uh, we knew we needed to get outside capital. Um, And so bringing in a little bit of outside capital to start. Uh, led to a severely oversubscribed series seed. Uh, we started out uh, trying to raise a $750,000 series seed round and it ended up being a $3 million series seed. Um, and that was really motivating for us um, to have that momentum uh, it, just on an idea. Uh, and so we took that and, and rolled that into you know, subsequent rounds. But it was really about those early investors and hats off to them as well. We wouldn't be here without them today. Uh, in believing in the ultimate vision. Uh, when we started the company, we had an idea and, you know, a duct tape together prototype, uh, 3D printed parts of it and, and said, this is the ultimate vision of where we want to go. And they, uh, they believed. And uh, a lot of those investors have invested in every single round, including the Series C1. You mentioned a seed round initially
2: of 750 and then more than heavily oversubscribed $3 million finish. There's a lot of entrepreneurs listening right now that are trying to raise that seed round right now, and they're scratching their necks and going nuts right now because they they don't know if they're asking for the right amount, if they're getting their next two hundred and fifty thousand, whatever it may be, and that's really the hard stuff. Like the really early yeah. stage money is often the hardest. How the hell does that happen? I mean, how do you just have this seven fifty number out there, and then all of a sudden it's like. 750, 8, 9, 1 million, 1.5, when does the number stop? And why is it this upward ticking roller coaster that just didn't stop going up?
1: Yeah, I think that and that was over a a while. And I think that as the med tech and venture capital communities have changed slightly, uh, we have leveraged uh, convertible notes heavily over the course because it's very difficult to uh, assess value of these companies early on. And it's it's somewhat of a double edged sword. Um, And, you know, looking back and, uh, again, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change anything that got us to this point, but it's something that medtech entrepreneurs and all entrepreneurs should be aware of um, is that uh, some of the benefits and downsides of convertible notes and different mechanisms other than equity rounds uh, that have brought this in. And so we leveraged convertible notes when we really didn't know what we had. Um, and, and so again, it was a testament to selling the vision um, and, and believing and in making incremental progress, being able to show you know quarterly progress towards an ultimate goal. And I think that our board and our early investors saw that a little bit of money had a high, high ROI. Um, and that the ultimate vision of where we wanted to go was, was enormous. It was nothing short of reshaping how grain health is managed. Um, and we, again, going back to the luck point, we were riding a very important wave at the time in um, you know 2013 2014, which was traumatic brain injury, concussion, stroke. A lot of things were going on in the field right now uh, or back then that were uh, not only in pulp culture but were were well known uh, in the neurology community to be significant problems that needed to be addressed. Um, and so going back a little bit to that fundraising was really it was a continuous process. There wasn't one seminal event. I have been pitching this company continuously uh, for nine years. Um, And so, um, although I think entrepreneurs would love to close around and then work uh, for a few years on their project, um, you know, for us, it was really about continuously fundraising. Um, And and although uh, that has its benefits and downsides, it's ultimately got us to where uh, we needed to be in the commercialization. Um, But it goes a little bit back to the point of you should never turn down a meeting and there were just one meeting led to another meeting, which led to another $50,000 check, which ultimately uh, ended up at a $3 million series seed round.
2: So I doubt that I've pitched one singular story as many times as you have, but in my, at least practice, I'm used to pitching a story over and over and over again. Sidebar, this question is more for me than the audience right Mm -hmm. now, but after all these years of pitching that over and over did you ever wake up or have a dream of actually pitching to yourself while you're sleeping?
1: I I a hundred percent, this has been something <laughs> that has been, uh, you know, people have this, I've never had the vision or the the dream of showing up to a test, uh, you know, without studying, but I have thought about being thrown into a room and pitching. I've dreamed about that. Um, and it becomes to the point where, um, you know, my girlfriend and now wife, could probably give the pitch because I've just talked about it so much over the last nine years. So
2: <laughs> that's too funny. I know how that feels. So that's I needed to ask the question. Um, so we, we go through the. Oh, before I forget, you mentioned even that phrase downside of convertible notes. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to harp on that because you've had success with convertible notes. It led to a heavily oversubscribed round. Um, Obviously, and, and even part of this podcast series, I've tried to highlight different options that entrepreneurs have for raising capital. But to your point of having a very successful convertible note raise, what are the downsides that entrepreneurs should at least be wary about? Because obviously there's upsides,
1: you've experienced yeah. that, but what are the potential downsides? So, so some of the downsides, when you start to think, uh, I mean, there's a, a few major ones. Um, the first is you, uh, you know, are you a discount Um, oftentimes in in these convertible notes uh, and an interest rate. And sometimes our convertible notes would be left open for 12 plus months. And what you think will initially be a small amount of incremental um, shares that are given out on the next equity round, once you have something open for uh, for 12 months, uh, that can lead to a relatively significant increase in the post-money valuation which people should just be aware of. Um, and just in your planning uh, for this, know that uh, some of those discounts, again, wouldn't change what we did. You just need to be aware of that from a modeling perspective uh, on the long-term impact of some of those convertible notes. Uh, I think that um, to a much lesser degree, it adds an element of, of timing, uh, which in some case can be more motivational. Uh, often these convertible notes have some Uh, conversion timeline. So it gives you uh, a a line in the sand that you can build towards, uh, which oftentimes are helpful, but sometimes in in unique circumstances like with us in COVID, um, it's hard to plan for some stuff like that. So uh, just know that once you open that convertible note, uh, you will have some timeline. Uh, And if you, uh, the the third piece is once you open up a significant convertible note, uh, you have some governance questions as well that, uh, that come up because you have I don't wanna say competing interests, but you have different groups of people with different rights. Uh, and sometimes as an executive team, you have to balance those because you'll have your equity find, you'll have your equity holders uh, often on the board. Uh, and then you'll have somebody that raised a significant amount of convertible note that will eventually convert to equity. But in that meantime, um, you obviously want to, they, they've been a tremendous help, but you have to balance uh, the, kind of those two different elements. Uh, which again, is just an extra layer uh, for those individuals that are managing and uh, working with those investors, uh, because they're, they're not the same people. Um, they are, they, they're fundamentally different on your cap table. Uh, they're different um, in how you've worked with them over the last uh, few years or months. Uh, and so you just have to be aware of that as, as an entrepreneur.
2: You mentioned managing investors, right? This whole point that you just talked about of different styles of investors, you coming from academia again and learning that business or relationship ability. What was that like? I mean, how is it like to report to a board or or manage a board or various styles of governance challenges amongst different styles of investors? I mean, that's a learning lesson within itself. I mean, I've heard over and over again from CEOs and C-level executives within organizations saying, you know, managing a board is an actual skill set within itself that Mm -hmm. if you don't have it, it could be a challenge or at least learn it properly. So what was that like?
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, this goes back to, uh, you know, being incredibly naive. Uh, I had to look up what a board of directors was. Uh, You know, I'm sitting here as an, an academic. I didn't, I didn't know there's boards of directors, uh, you know, for companies, and uh, so that was kind of the starting point. This is how naive I was when we started. Uh, but you're right; it is a, it is a, um, it is a skill set. It is uh, important to have open lines of communication. I've had uh, great lines of communications with all our investors, and um, whether they're current board members or former board members, as just like the team, the the need for a board and the the talents. And the experience on a board will change as you grow. Uh, And we've worked with and continue to work with some incredible board members that have opened up opportunities for us, um, you know, throughout the life of the company. And uh, I've been very excited to see as we're moving closer and closer, um, you know, to not only a public company, but a company at scale, bringing in new skill sets to help um, supplement uh, the the great board members that we have today.
2: So, You mentioned this idea that there's been numerous investors who have continuously made investments in Nova Signal on each round that has been raised. And and I believe you mentioned even some that have been in every round. Um, What is that story like, especially for all those entrepreneurs listening right now who have raised money successfully, possibly, and raising a new round? But when you go from round to round, is it a good signal to the world on your technology that investors continuously invest? How do you balance that need between the next new round maintaining those investors from previous, and then also getting new investors? Uh, and, and is that an important factor within itself? Meaning should I go get n- new investors or should I just have my series B be an absolute mimicry of series A and just on a larger scale? So what's that like?
1: Yeah. it's a, And there's a lot of thoughts out there and um, it's a, 'll give you I'll give you my opinion on it. And so one, again, incredibly thankful to to our investors that have believed in this vision. I mean, oftentimes we'll have you know seventy to ninety percent uh, uh, investors exercising their pro rata. And so uh, you know again, hats off to them uh, for continuing to believe in what we're doing here, especially helping us through uh, some of the tougher times, whether that's Covid or you know some of the delays in, in some of our product launches. Uh, but having them as a, a rock has been uh, instrumental in our success. Um, we, we wouldn't be here without them. Uh, having said that, bringing new skill sets in is essential, I believe, in continuing to grow the company. The investors that invest in the series seed round um, are investing in a much different company. They're investing in a vision. When you start want to bring on Uh, new investors, uh, as you start to think about uh, a liquidity event or going public or commercializing and growth, you want to bring in um, investors that have experience in that area. Um, You don't just want capital. Uh, And so bringing on new investors, uh, although venture capital has somewhat changed uh, or is moving in a slightly different direction uh, these days than it was uh, five, six, seven years ago when you had defined Uh, venture capitalists that wanted to be in the seed round uh, where you see now larger funds that are spanning everything from seed all the way through growth. um, It is important to identify and position yourselves um, in a sense that you are getting new investors to take you along this new journey. Um, If you're still continuing to fund your company, with angel investors at the growth stage you're probably missing out on an opportunity to harness the power of some of these uh, these larger networks
2: open ended question again out of all the rounds that you've been a part of raising what's been the hardest round how do you classify <laughs> the hardest round
1: so i think there are, you know this is probably a, a cliche answer they're all hard in in, in their own um, in, in their own way uh, but you can look back at some of these. Obviously, the first, um, the, the first round is hard for getting somebody to come in. Um, I will say the, the harder rounds are, are, are when you maybe missed a milestone. Um, and being able to convince uh, investors that you went out to uh, that, unfortunately, you did miss a milestone, but you still have a vision there. You still have a pathway. And being able to convince them is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and so, you know, some of our earlier rounds, we um, had some delays in regulatory clearances. Um, some of the manufacturing was harder than we expected, you know, developing a fully automated robot comes with, you know, a whole host of, of testing and manufacturing um, questions and uh, even supply chain aspects, getting the parts that we need to grow. And so I think that that, you um, That added to a different element. So, as entrepreneurs start to map out their uh, fundraising pathway, which uh, I believe they should, this shouldn't be a round to round. You should really put some thought into how many rounds you might need. What does that look like? What milestones do I need to accomplish to get to where I need to be? Um, COVID created a a unique circumstance for us because of some of the timings of our, our fundraising. So, again, shout out to our investors for supporting us in that uh, March-April 2020 time timeframe uh, and having Diane come on as their new CEO at that time and really be thrown into a very difficult environment that ultimately turned into a, a, a very lucrative environment for a number of, uh, of companies. But early on in those days, it was very questionable um, what that market looked like in, in March and April and May of 2020. Um, I'll say the, the, the difficulties of the last round are the, the nebulous definition of, of growth. Uh, when you're early on in a company, you're selling a vision, which isn't tied to a direct metric often. Uh, you're selling a vision of, uh, of, of brain health and, and how you're gonna change the field, where once you get into the growth rounds, it's much more about hard metrics, ARR and revenue and utilization, uh, which although seem very tangible, Um, vary between investors on, you know, what does adoption look like? Um, When do you hit this milestone of adoption? And especially within uh, MedTech, some of these timelines are much longer um, for for clinical trials. So uh, although it might be cliche, all of them have their different challenges. Uh, Obviously, with the the C1 round that we recently closed, uh, it is really about that that crossover uh, from feasibility to growth and what does what does um, adoption look like? What does feasibility look like and traction look like? So those were the, the more difficult things in the last round. And harping on that point about
2: raising to hit that next milestone, this very finite balance. And I try to wrap my head around this too, because so many people talk about valuations, and of course, everyone wants the unicorn, or the bigger the valuation, the more amazing it is. But it's also could be a double-edged sword, right? Mm-hmm. And my question is if and we've heard this throughout the series where you raise enough or an appropriate amount in order to execute and hit that next milestone and raise per the milestones. Uh, but if you come shy of that, that's super dangerous. Mm-hmm. And also what are the negative side effects? If you overraise, where you might have more than enough money, way more than enough money to hit that next serious milestone. And then what could it do to whether it's the culture, the focus, the, the vision, the, the future of the company so in in as best of ways you can describe it what advice would you give entrepreneurs to find that nice balance between understanding how to properly raise capital to hit that next milestone and taking into considerations so they don't fall short but also don't be greedy and overvalue yourself and raise too much
1: yeah, because you will. And, and we've had a little bit of everything uh, in there. Um, you know, in our in our Series A round, uh, we were able to uh, raise at a significantly increased valuation, and then you're chasing something. Um, and so the downside of raising at a higher valuation is the next round will be subsequently harder or significantly harder, depending on how much cash you have uh, in reserve to hit that next milestone. And so that was the, you know, the point I made earlier about understanding... You are not raising one round, you are raising a series of rounds. And I don't think that entrepreneurs think enough. And I know that I and my team didn't think enough about what does this round look like? And then what do subsequent rounds look like to ensure that we can add adequate step ups in valuation as you continue to grow the company? So I think that that is a a key learning from this. Um, The other one, which is, again, probably cliche, is that it is going to take longer and more money than you think. whether it's just software or it's medical, uh, outside influences can, um, you, you want to have money in the bank to help weather some of those storms. And we've been in the case where we've hit milestones with money in the bank, and then you have to strategically think about, okay, well, what else can I hit in the next you know, six to 10 months uh, that'll allow me to raise the next round at a slightly larger valuation? We've also been on the, the side of the fence where we, we ran out of money. Um, And then you have to think about, you know, what impact that has on the, on the team, on the culture uh, and the strategic direction of the company. And again, uh, hats off to our investors and, uh, you know, our team for uh, addressing those concerns and, you know, seeing that um, maybe regulatory took a little bit longer um, than previously expected. So I think that uh, I, I would err on the side of raising additional capital um, to, to ensure that that's always, that's not always easy Uh, coming from, Somebody that's done this. Uh, I know it's easy and frustrating sometimes to hear entrepreneurs say, "Oh, just raise more money." It's not often that easy. Uh, you have to adjust to what you have available uh, and make sure that you're running financially a very a very tight house. And understanding that those dollars that you're spending are not only other investors' dollars, but they're the lifeblood of your company. So ensure that what you're spending money on has a direct impact, especially early on in a company. You should be able to tie contributions of dollars uh, to the ultimate next raise and milestones if you find yourself working on side projects and you know other things that can really be a distraction ultimately that will uh, that 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 could hurt the next round and the the success and viability of your company in the long term
2: did you guys experience this proverbial value of death did you guys ever have to go through that this value of oh. death process
1: yeah i mean i think that um you know, not so much now that we've commercialized and, and you know, made it, made it to that point and have key opinion leaders out there and showing the benefits, not only from a technology perspective, but from an economic perspective on an, and an outcome perspective on these patients. But once you get into this very tough range where you've proven the technology, but you don't have near enough commercial adoption is with a really tough, uh, with a really tough, you know, couple of years. Uh, it turned out for us as you're really trying to show adoption of the technology. And, and so making sure that you have, you know, early customers that, that are well aligned with your vision, uh, I think was key uh, for us being able to get out there. And just like investors, early customers, especially in medtech um, and, and really throughout technology and, and entrepreneurship, having those early customer advocates was key for us because you just need a few early on to help bridge that gap. Uh, from early feasibility to technology demonstration and adoption. And uh, some of those forward-thinking physicians um, remain key for us today, Uh, but uh, we're we're critical in us uh, surviving that valley of death. So
2: we're going to go super elementary on this question, and we can kind of keep it high level, almost think about like a textbook response, if you will, theoretical. Um, What you looked for in investors at Seed Round? right? And then, which even that leap to series A, which is in theory, technically that venture capital money where it might've been angels Mm -hmm. and angel groups before possibly. So you look at seed capital, what you look for there, your first time really grabbing venture money in series A, and then fast forward all the way now to growth capital, that's going to drive commercial adoption. You were looking for something different each time in investors, from seed to that first time VC money series A, and then all the way to the end commercial growth money, just highlight those points as to, and think about this first time entrepreneur who has never raised money before and would need to know what they're about to get involved in. What are you looking for in seed investment? What are you then changing and looking for? That's the nuances and differences between series A and seed. And then all the way to the end series C, what are you looking for in those investors that you would never find in Series A and Seed?
1: Right, you know, great question, and it, you know, complex in a variety of different ways. So when you when you first start out and you're looking for for Seed investors or angel investors, I'm going to discount the friends and family, which uh, you know a lot of people utilize, and you know, it's its own stress um, as you start to think about bringing that capital in. Uh, but when you start to think about seed and angel investors, it's really about the vision. The team will be a, a, a common denominator here, that they're they're looking for team. Um, but as we're looking for investors, we were looking for somebody that believed in where we were going, that believed and had flexibility in, we might not know, we completely changed markets, um, opportunities, direction from our seed investors, but they believed in the core core value of what we're trying to do. So if you really try to simplify into one sentence, seed investors were really trying to believe in that one sentence, if you could, if you could get that. We, they believed in the power of blood flow. Excellent. Now, when we moved on to series A, we had to start to think about and find investors that not only strategically added value to us, Uh, but would go one layer deeper uh, in in the analysis of not only our company, but where we wanted to go. So by the time we got to series A, we were proving out the the technology where even if it was in prototype form. And so those individuals that had a slightly longer term thought process that had a little bit more dry powder uh, to get us to the next stage where we needed them to be early adopters, but also had the vision to support a commercial product. Um, and as we've now continued to move past the Series A into that B, C round, you need to start to think about people strategically that have uh, opportunities that will take you into uh, that really that growth stage, and have a long-term vision to hold. As you start to strategically think about you know going public or being acquired, who are those people that can bring those P, uh, bring those other investors or strategics to the table? And so it is a really important aspect as you get into that. B, C round to think, is this somebody that is going to hold as we continue to go? Um, you don't want somebody with a short vision uh, where maybe in the series seed round, um, you, you, can, you can have investors that are a little bit more short term uh, where if you start to get into later rounds, you need somebody a little bit more stable that can write obviously larger checks, but also provide strategic, uh, strategic guidance as you start to grow uh, and enter these new markets and new stages of the company. And, you know, one example of that is um, being able to use different versions of capital or different pull from different pools of money. And, you know, now that we're producing commercial revenues being able to have debt and layer on debt as an opportunity to, uh, to grow our business as well is an interesting aspect of targeting specific investors because different investors have different access to Different mechanisms for raising capital. And um, I would encourage uh, entrepreneurs as you get into that revenue stage to start to layer on different types of capital to really build a mix uh, as you grow and commercialize.
2: And I want to leave off on this final question. It's a longer one that has two parts, both pros and cons, if you will. So, going back to this notion again of you being a founder, an entrepreneur, and obviously seeing something to patients. So that whole spectrum. You were an academic when you started and, and then became this entrepreneur, right? So jumping into industry and now you're a full-on businessman, right? I mean, you've been through wars and ups and downs and who you are today versus the person that was drawing on the napkin eight, nine years ago. Um, totally different person. You've learned a tremendous amount. Having gone from that academic background to now industry, two questions. On that full spectrum of founder to now bringing a device and system to patients, what are some of the dark sides and aha moments of the business and being that entrepreneur who starts something to now, we'll call it finishes something by bringing it to patients or so accomplishing what you set out to do? What are some of these lessons and experiences, generically speaking, whatever you sure. want to share? Um, generically speaking on, holy shit, I had is, ignorance is bliss going back to your point. Um, I never knew that people acted like that or politics worked like that or supply chains were going to break like that or really that happened. I mean, I never even saw that coming. And these dark sides of business that are obstacles in the way and things that shouldn't be part of reality, but they are. So that's mm-hmm. the dark side question. And then you can roll right into this next one, which is just the antithesis of this, which are those major aha moments that, like you said, those highs that are super high. What did you experience on the positive side that you also weren't privy to that was gonna be part of this amazing journey with obviously the notion of developing a system hitting patients, but there was these amazing experiences and aha moments that led you there. So dark side versus aha positive moments business speaking, soup to nuts, academic entrepreneur to finally bring something to patients.
1: Yeah, I mean so first question on the you know on the dark side, um, really focused uh, one thing that I think especially on engineering entrepreneurs make the mistake of is thinking that they need more done to start a company. And uh, what I often tell people is we started with an idea and one published paper, and that was it. That's all we had. And I've talked to countless uh, entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs that, well, I got to get this other thing done. I got to get one more thing done. In um, my advice to them is if you're solving a problem and you have an idea, that's usually enough. Um, obviously, you want to make as much progress as you can, but sometimes you know, the enemy of good is perfect. And you're just not going to get that in in entrepreneurship. You're not going to be able to solve every problem before you go and raise capital. And so I I think most entrepreneurs would be shocked uh, at what is needed to start. If you have a vision, you have a team, you're solving a significant problem, that's enough to get started. And I think that that initial activation energy is is probably the hardest thing for some of those entrepreneurs to get over, um, which is, it can be a very bright side but it can be a very uh, dark side for some of those entrepreneurs trying to start something or knowing when to start something um i will say one of the frustrating things and on, on the dark side which is which is tough as uh, you know as an academic and somebody that is you know published papers and really think about the scientific rigor of what we're doing is how you're viewed uh, was very shocking to me uh, very early on. So I had gone from uh, an academic environment and um, finishing my PhD and then flipping to, hey, now we have this technology we want to start. And really early on by, uh, by some of our clinical partners being seen as somebody that's you know quote unquote sold out or um, has a much different motivation. Um, and so that was really tough for me and remains uh, a little bit tough for me today. Um, in that uh, although there is a money aspect of you know, building a company and ultimately want to be financially successful, uh, there is, we're hugely motivated uh, by providing new technology to physicians and clinicians so uh, to ultimately help those patients. So I'd say the darkest side uh, for me very early on was almost being viewed um, as, as somebody that was trying to take advantage of the system, which was um, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, a lot of the um, early motivation to start the company was the fact that I was in the hospital every day and saw the need and no one was filling it. And the reality was, uh, was trying to get that technology into the, into the system, which wouldn't be addressed by academics. And this is not a downside to academics. That's, that's needed. Um, we, we need that element of whether it's basic science or, or, or clinical development, But the reality is, is if you're going to impact patients, you're going to need uh, to ultimately have entrepreneurs, engineers, business people, marketing people, salespeople that that take this to market. Uh, And so that was probably the darkest side for me very early on is trying to balance that. And I I try to balance it today. Uh, Talking with physicians, I often have to say, you know, this is my scientific hat. This is my marketing hat. Um, these are the two different elements, and it is a difficult conversation sometimes. But it is something that all medtech entrepreneurs are going to have to balance. And then, what about the aha side? So, I mean, the aha side uh, probably—you know—I go back to the people, uh, the the people that we've worked with. I mean, we've been again incredibly lucky to work with unbelievable. Uh, people. And it, oftentimes there's this cliche of you're spending more time with uh, your startup founders and your early team members than you do your significant others or your family. And that that couldn't be more true. Um, it's spending countless hours uh, sleeping in the office, traveling endlessly, um, and you make some of the best friendships that you will ever have. At the same time, it is incredibly difficult. As as you mentioned earlier, the team changes uh, over the course of over years and stages of the company, and it is incredibly difficult um, to see to see uh, some of those relationships change. Um, some of the uh, the impacts that uh, I know I've been thinking about a lot lately is is mental health and the impact of the company uh, on these individual relationships. I mean, it's it's very hard to see people go, uh, whether that's part of you know, a, a downsizing or people just needing to move on because their skill sets are no longer applicable for the, the, the time and place of the company. Um, but that is far outweighed uh, by, you know, the friendships, the, the relationships that I've formed over the last nine years with, again, whether it's members of the team, uh, both new and old, or our customers, uh, being able to uh, rely on them and be in those hospitals and see the impact of what we're trying to do has really been the most fulfilling aspect of uh, of building not only a MedTech company, but a company generally.
2: So this has been an absolute rare and also amazing experience, having to have the ability to share this story with those who are listening on what is it like to be a founder all the way to bringing a system to patients and not too many can tell that story. So I'm very honored to have you on MedTech Money here today. I'm very happy to have heard not only the differences of raising that capital and that journey that you've been on in all these various stages and some of the the landmines and aha moments that you've shared, but also... The business acumen that you've gained all over these years as well, just on the human side, the human behavior side, the the dark side, if you will. So these business lessons combined with capital raising experience on once again, being a founder, and then all of a sudden being now a commercial stage organization and and helping out those patients that you set out all those years to help out. Um, It's an amazing, fascinating story. I'm totally honored to have this on the MedDeck Money podcast. And with that being said, thank you very much for your time, Robert. Hamilton, co-founder, chief scientific officer of Nova Signal. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising and investing capital. Thank you so much for your time.
1: And thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at